If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The Benin Bronzes are one of the most impressive collections of artworks ever created, and their future is currently up for debate. While many of these artefacts are now held in European museums and private collections, calls are being made to return them to Nigeria where British troops looted them from Benin City in 1897. I spoke to the University of Cambridge historian Bronwyn Everall to find out more about the history of the bronzes, the culture that created them, and what their future might be. Today we're going to be talking about the Benin bronzes, and I'm sure that some listeners will have heard some of the current debates around these historical artworks and whether European museums that hold them currently should return them to Nigeria. But I'd actually wager that less listeners will know about the bronzes themselves and the culture that made them. So let's start by talking about the Kingdom of Benin. So where was it located? What do we know about it and its society, its rulers, its structures, for example? Yeah, so it was a very long-lived kingdom um, in what is now Nigeria, um, to the east of uh, modern Lagos. Um, And we're not entirely sure when it was founded. Um, there are there was a sort of previous dynasty that existed, but we know for certain that there was a city there um, beginning in the sort of early 13th century and probably dating from earlier than that. Um, and one of the reasons that we know about that and, and about the sort of long history of Benin is through these bronzes. So we know who, who these kings are stretching back through time and the work of Nigerian historians um, and Benin historians specifically um, who worked to reconstruct these king lists going back um, to some, some say the 1180s, um, but, but certainly by the beginning of the 13th century. And it's worth clarifying, I guess, isn't it? We're talking about a place that's separate and different to the modern country of Benin. Yeah. So the modern uh, the modern state of Benin named itself after uh, the the empire of Benin, which had existed before. Yeah. How do we know about the history of this um, kingdom? Is it primarily through, say, the bronzes and artwork? Is there a written tradition of history writing? Is there an oral tradition? Or do we know about it through European encounters? Um, a huge, actually, range of sources. Um, it's one of these fun things as a historian to think about because, yeah, there are the bronzes which tell tell the story um, in a particular way. Um, there are oral histories kept by the official oral historians of the kingdom that have been passed down through the centuries. 
um, and which were luckily um, recorded in a variety of places over time. Um, but a, a, a Benin historian in the early 20th century also wrote these things down. So we have a really good record um, of, of what happened drawing from those oral historians. Um, there's also archaeological evidence about a lot of the sort of expansion um, and cultural contact um, between Benin and other parts of Nigeria. So things like those walled city, you know, the walls that were built have been really useful for, for the archaeological record, but also looking at similar production practices in um, the Oyo Empire to the, to the no Northwest, for instance. So you can see sort of exchange there. Um, there's linguistic evidence. So thinking about how different words come into the language at different times. And there are European travelers accounts. So the people who come into Benin City at various times um, and record, you know, what the city looked like and, and how it was decorated and how they got there and um, who seemed to be the power on the throne at the time. So what do we know about the way that Benin was ruled? So um, it had a Oba, who's, who is the ruler, the king, um, who's a sort of divine and political presence. Um, so he is not a constitutional monarch, but there are then other forms of political uh, influence in the kingdom. So he's the sort of head of the kingdom, but then he has advisors um, and there's a sort of council of chiefs and others who are um, also involved in governing the, the city, but he's the ultimate ruler. And, and much of the sort of artwork and culture and religious framing of uh, Benin City and then the broader kingdom of Benin is, is organized around the presence of the Oba. So as you mentioned, the, the heart of the kingdom, really, the capital was Benin City. So if we visited Benin City at its height, say, what, what kind of place would we have found? Yeah, so at its height in the sort of 15th, 16th century, it was a large city with, um, with a broad uh, main street running down, um, dividing the sort of palace quarters from the rest of the town. And in the rest of the town lived all the sort of artisans and, and um, craft workers who helped to, um, to build the city itself, but also to provide the bronzes and, and um, other artifacts for the, for the sort of worship of the, of the king. Um, it was surrounded by really impressive walls. So all of the European visitors who arrive in the city comment on the, the height and impressiveness of uh, the structures that, that surrounded the city. Um, but, but beyond that, then it's sort of located in, in a forest um, that's pretty well protected from, um, from invasion um, by, by surrounding other kingdoms, so the, there are other Yoruba kingdoms um, to the northwest, um, and then there are um, sort of other groups uh, to the southeast who are, you know, at various times part of this expanding empire of Benin. You mentioned their European contact, and I want to ask you about that in some more detail um, in a moment. But before we go into that, let's talk about the bronzes themselves for a bit. So the, the term, the Benin bronzes, it actually encompasses a really broad range of artworks, doesn't it? So what falls under that umbrella? Yeah, so there are these bronze plaques which had decorated the um, palace itself uh, and which tell the story of all of the kings stretching back in time. But then the real thing that, that attracted European attention were these um, enormous ivory tusks uh, that decorated um, the palace but also were found in other ritual contexts and which are carved, intricately carved, 
um, with pictures of, you know, royal stories and other sort of um, motifs along alongside those. And there were tons of these ivory, ivory tusks. Um, but then there are, you know, more sort of quotidian, like day-to-day little objects that were also found. So, you know, um, people's individual kind of um, shrines and uh, and other objects, so wooden things, but, you know, smaller items. Um, and so there's a whole range of things that are made out of, you know, clay all the way through to these fantastic um, bronzes and then and then these carved ivory tusks. So when were most of them made or did they kind of span a, a few centuries? Yeah, they span a, a long time. So um, the, the sort of tradition is that, um, that they were developed in the 13th century. Um, but actually examples have been found um, that, that have been dated to the 9th century. So there's a sort of long tradition. Um, but the real sort of flourishing was in the sort of 15th, 16th century height of, of the empire. Um, and then there was another sort of period of, of artistic um, development in the in the 18th century as well. The, the plaques that you mentioned there are perhaps the most recognisable um, forms of the Benin bronzes. And, and there are some of those in the British Museum at the moment, which people may have seen. Um, do we know what their purpose was? Were they purely decorative? So they have a sort of variety of purposes. Um, one is to sort of narrate the story of the kingdom and, and the, the lineage of the kings. Um, and part of that is a ritual purpose um, to re- for the current Oba, the, the new Oba, to recognize uh, the ancestors of, of the past. Um, and so uh, new um, artworks were commissioned when the new Oba took charge um, recognizing their their fa- the father's um, work, but also uh, honoring the the sort of queen mother, as it were. So the plaques themselves tell a variety of stories, and and they're sort of I, I would re- I would sort of liken them to memes. Um, they were they were stories in one sort of one frame, and people knew what they meant, right? And so if if it was a picture um, of a leopard with with the oba, then then you were supposed to know that that was a, that was a particular story. Um, if it was a picture of uh, an oboe with sort of fish legs, then you're supposed to know that that's another story. And those are supposed to reference um, particular um, kings, you know, journeys to becoming oboe. So they weren't just about decoration. They were about telling the story, re- recording the history of the kingdom exactly. as well. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about their creation? What do we know about how they were actually made? So the bronzes themselves are made using the lost wax technique, um, which is something that a lot of different places around the world had developed sort of independently over time. Um, and, and it's a sort of, it's a very complicated process that requires a lot of different skills, right? So you have to, first you have to make a clay mold and then you have to apply wax, uh, and, and decorate the, you know, carve the wax itself. And then you have to apply another clay mold and then you have to fire it at exactly the right temperature um, to lose the wax and then you have to fire it again at exactly the right temperature with the new um, you know molten bronze inside and then you break the cast and and hopefully you end up with uh, with what you intended (laughs) inside and it's a it's a really complicated process that requires a lot of um, different tools and it's a process that required people to be apprenticed for a long time to to learn the skills so it it it, yeah so it attests to sort of the the complexity of the kingdom that they have this group who are dedicated specifically to making these artworks 
there's loads of pictures of these scattered throughout the internet. If you could encourage everybody to to look up a couple of pieces, say, that might give you a flavour, an idea of how impressive these artworks are, what would you recommend as your personal favourites, say? There are some hilarious, I think hilarious, um, depictions of, of what the Portuguese look like when they arrive. Um, so I, I highly recommend any of the ones that include the Portuguese alongside. They have sort of pointy noses and little beards, and they have those conquistador-type helmets on, um, and I recommend those. Um, but the sort of more, I think the more impressive ones are, are these um, the ivory carvings of Queen Mother Pendant Mask the, um, to the Queen Ioba. Um, and it is carved out of ivory. Um, in honor of the Queen Mother, and it has the sort of heads of various people sort of carved into the top. But it's extremely beautiful and, and really like well rendered. Um, and I would highly recommend it's it's in the Metropolitan Museum. During the course of this conversation, lurking in the background almost has been um, the Europeans and European contact. What can you tell us about how Europeans first made contact with the Kingdom of Benin and how that relationship played out over time? Yeah, so the Portuguese were the first to arrive in the 15th century. um, And uh, they sort of establish contact and and begin trading um, with the kingdom. But they have a very light presence on the coast. You know, it's it's basically a sort of mutual trading relationship to begin with. And they record some of those voyages, but mostly they're there to um, to get materials, you know, ivory and, and other things um, from the kingdom, trading them brass manilas in exchange. So um, basically like bracelets made out of brass, which then are used by um, by the kingdom to produce things like the uh, bronzes, um, but also internally um, sort of as uh, as wealth. There are then sort of growing, there's growing interest in, in the kingdom of Benin because there is this um, sense that it is a wealthy kingdom and people are intrigued by, by this enormous and sort of prosperous city. So the Dutch arrive um, and there's a, a British trading voyage in the 16th century as well. Um, but these are all sort of, you know, sporadic trading voyages um, and there's, uh, you know, attempts at, you know, making regular contact. But for the most part, the the trade is happening along the coast, um, which at various points is under the control of the Kingdom of Benin. But the city itself is not really a major trading place, right? The trading happens further away um, at the coast under the direction of the, uh, of the kingdom itself. So European contact like, helps to grow the wealth of the wealth and influence of the Kingdom of Benin. Um, and it you know, contributes in this particular way to the development of, of art because of the arrival of these brass manilas. But it's always sort of kept at arm's length um, for the most part, uh, especially um, up until the sort of 18th century. There are missionaries at various times, but that doesn't really take off. The trade along the coast is at times really prosperous and at times it sort of dies down. So it's a bit of a um, up and down relationship uh, with, with European traders throughout this period. Partially, they're involved in the slave trade, but again, at sort of arm's length, slavery is really important to the Kingdom of Benin as a social institution, but it is not a major slave trader itself, um, although 
the slave trade generally from that region is is pretty large. So what do we know about British um, involvement in Benin? Yeah, so that really takes off in the 19th century um, as a result, actually, of the transition away from the slave trade and to the trade that comes after, especially in this region, which is the trade in palm oil. Um, and so there's a real um, interest in uh, in the area's production of palm oil, which Benin is, is known for. And, and increasingly, a sort of British interest in um, getting involved in matters of state rather than just in matters of trade, um, because they're interested in directing specific kinds of trade. So they're not just going to come up and trade whatever it is that the Oba of Benin wants to trade anymore. Um, they are going to specifically say, no, 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 what we want is palm oil, and this is what we'll give you in exchange. And really, by the end of the 19th century, in addition to those things, it's also, and we don't want you to trade with anybody else. <laughs> um, and so it's a, it's a sort of more exclusive focus on trade. Um, and from the middle of the 19th century, um, there's um, British control of Lagos. So they annex Lagos in, in 1861. And increasingly, there's a sort of British presence um, to the east and to the southeast of, of the kingdom, kingdom of Benin. So it's sort of, it's sort of increasingly an island um, of independence um, within this broader British trading sphere as, they, as the interest shifts from, from the slave trade, but also from sort of the variety of goods to a specific focus on palm oil specifically and, and who can provide palm oil um, that the British want when they want it exclusively to them. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The technology for making replicas is so um, good these days that actually we could give the, the originals back to Benin City um, and have replicas in the other museums. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. 
So a key year in this story is um, 1897. Can you tell us about how events unfolded in that year and what that meant for Benin City and its bronzes? The turning point for Benin history is in February of 1897 when the the city is sacked um, by a British expeditionary force. Um, But the reason for that sort of goes back, you know, six weeks earlier to to January when uh, the vice, the acting vice consul um, of the region, uh, for some reason, which is still a little bit um, unclear, decides to approach Benin City in order to meet with the OVA. So they're established sort of to the southeast and also to the southwest. Um, and, and there's a sort of sense that Benin is in the middle of territory that really ought to be under their control uh, and which would, if it was under their control, open up a whole um, you know, wealth of, uh, of access to northern Nigeria as well. And so... They sort of want to cut out the middleman, essentially. They see Benin as a sort of obstructionist middleman in the trade that they want total access to. Uh, And there had been a buildup of frustration with the OBA for not uh, just letting the British traders get on with it. (laughs) Um, And so there had been a treaty in, in 1892, which... Again, it's sort of unclear whether the OBA knew what he was signing away, but it had said that the British had exclusive rights to trade, that, that trade would be free, as in they don't need to provide any customs duties to the, to the kingdom. British traders would be dealt with by British officials rather than by the kingdom's um, judicial system. This had sort of existed but been unenforceable because the kingdom was still really powerful. Um, and so... There had been a sort of campaign by the British traders um, to get the uh, imperial government to allow them to go up to the OBA and enforce these treaties. And that had been unsuccessful. The Foreign Office was not really on board. And at the very beginning of 1897, that acting vice consul, um, James Phillips, sort of takes matters into his own hands, and nobody's really sure why he does it. Um, there's a bit of obscurity. There's no official record of, of anybody authorizing his trip. Um, and and he only goes with a handful of people. Uh, but when he's turned away, because it's the middle of a, of a particular ritual and the Oba can't see him, um, he, he presses on anyway. And, and the, court, the court, the sort of chiefs who, who back the Oba, use that as an excuse to attack Phillips to say, you know, basically they, they see this as a moment to say, you know, the British need to stay away. We told you no, and now we're going to enforce our rights to say no. And then the British retaliate in exactly the same way, saying, you killed our people, and now we're going to come and retaliate. And so they um, decimate, you know, the, the kingdom, uh, destroy the city, um, and exile the Oba at that point. And of course, part of that destruction of the city was the looting, the ransacking of the Benin bronzes. What do we know about that process? Was it, was it calculated? Was it part of the official agenda, essentially? There are sort of sporadic accounts of people saying, well, it's really wealthy. Um, well, the Oba has all of this ivory. Uh, and Phillips himself, in making the case to, um, to the uh, Foreign Office says basically, you know, we the, the mission will pay for itself because there is all this wealth. 
So it's definitely there in the records that people were aware of it and that there was a sort of sense of, you know, this is going to be a bit of a bonanza. Um, and, and similar ha- things had happened elsewhere in the empire, right? So you have the sacking of, um, of the summer palace in Beijing, for instance, um, you know, has a similar kind of um, pattern. But we don't know for sure. And it's certainly not in any official um, directions. And then the pattern that it takes when it actually happens also suggests that this was just sort of a a side benefit of being part of the expedition. Um, So the officers really take the best stuff for themselves and the sort of further down on the, on the pecking order that you are, the less you're left with really um, in terms of, uh, in terms of the loot that was available, Um, which, yeah, which suggests that they sort of divided it up amongst themselves at the time. So the bronzes now can be found across various museums, um, many of which are in Europe, and private collections. Do we know about how they ended up there? Yeah, so they're mostly brought back um, from the from the expedition uh, and sold by the people who had um, been involved. So sold to collectors, sold to the museums. Oh, so sold directly to the museums. It's not over time that they've been donated. Some of them were taken taken straight there uh yeah i mean essentially some of them were were taken straight there um i mean most through private collectors first um so sold to private collectors um or in the case of in the case of the ivory sold for the ivory itself there are merchants in um in lagos and um in in other nigerian port cities who are there you know to buy these things up a lot of them then are brought back as well to um to the foreign office and then distributed variously through there. So some things are given to Queen Victoria. Um, some things are given to, or like are loaned to the British Museum and then ultimately given to the British Museum. But then the British Museum ends up also collecting from private collectors um, over time, um, which is also what, what other museums um, end up doing. So some people hold on to their stuff and it gets passed down through their families. Um, and we, we know less about what's out there from that perspective. Um, although some stories are emerging now because people are being made aware. Um, but a lot of it is sold in sort of the 20s and 30s um, as the sort of original members of the expedition are, um, you know, pass on and then, and then um, their, their relatives sell, the, sell these items to collectors or to museums. So I guess you'll never know this exactly, but do we have any sense of how many artworks are out there and where they might be? Thousands, <laughs> thousands. Um, I, I mean, I've, I've read 161 museums and private collections is, is the sort of current estimate. Um, but, uh, but as I said, you know, so people read about this um, and, and sort of it jogs a memory and then they go and look and it turns out, you know, oh, they've had this thing on their shelf from their great, great grandfather or whatever. So, um, so it's, it's hard to know really by, with any Where- sort of specificity. Where are some of the most prominent um, collections held now? So um, the Berlin Ethnographic Museum has a large collection. The British Museum um, obviously has a has a huge collection. Actually, it's so huge that they can't actually show it all at once. So they have a sort of permanently rotating exhibit um, showing some of the stuff that they have. Uh, the Metropolitan Museum in New York has some. There are some museums in Los Angeles that have some. Um, there's there are museums in in um, the Emirates and in Japan that have some, and there are there are a, a handful in in Nigeria as well. So the reason why probably most people would have heard of the Benin bronzes in recent years in in the West at least 
is because there's been a big debate that's gaining in momentum in recent years about whether they should be returned to Nigeria. What are some of the reasons for, firstly, for opposing the return of the bronzes? What's behind the reluctance to send them back to Nigeria? So for a long time, and I mean, I guess in a sort of justified way at the the very beginning, there was a sort of sense that the British Museum's job was to collect these things so that they didn't end up all in sort of obscure private collections. Um, And that by bringing them together, they were, you know, curating them and and taking care of them. That was the sort of justification in the early 20th century, mid 20th century. And there was a sense that, you know, they were displaying the sort of world heritage um, that went along with all all varieties of um, artifacts from around the world. So, you know, accompanying all of their other exhibitions. Um, And there's a bit of a a lingering argument along those lines um, that if if the... British Museum and other museums are going to have these kinds of world heritage collections, um, then it would be useful to have African art represented there um, so that it doesn't get excluded and so that people aren't unaware that, you know, African states had these enormous um, and and successful kingdoms that had these um, traditions. That said, (laughs) the arguments against that now are actually, um, you know, the British Museum's collection is so huge that you can't see the whole thing um, and that people can't see the whole thing altogether because actually it's scattered all around the world. So even though this was maybe a laudable goal, they, they wouldn't be able to gather the whole thing and they wouldn't be able to show it all at the same time. They'd have to have a dedicated museum just for the bronzes. Um, and, you know, Nigeria is a very wealthy country now. And although there's a lot of inequality, it is a country that has the sort of capacity to to have this kind of museum. And in fact, you know, has been making the case that it should have this kind of museum for, you know, 40, 50 years. So again, the argument that, you know, there isn't anywhere in Nigeria or specifically in Benin City to house this kind of collection um, is is sort of moot at this point. And what are some of the arguments for returning the bronzes? I mean, mostly it comes down to sort of reclaiming the patrimony of of the country, right? So it was taken in this illegal raid, effectively. Um, And, you know, although it had been framed at the time as a sort of retaliatory expedition that was justified, we now know that it wasn't really that justified and it was sort of prompted by um, illegal action. Um, and so there is a sense that actually there, there is absolutely no justification for it having been taken in the first place and therefore it ought to be returned. Um, and I, I, it can be hard to see it, you know, from that perspective, but I think something, a, a sort of analogy that I've used when talking to students about this occasionally, um, is to think about how everybody was very upset, justifiably, that the Islamic State went into, you know, historic sites, um, in the Middle East you know, destroyed these historic sites and sold the the antiquities for, you know, cash to run their state. It's a very similar process that's happening in the 1890s. Um, and and if we if we look askance at what Islamic State was doing with this, you know, with these antiquities in our current century, then I think we have to apply, a, you know, sort of similar logic to the way that the Benin bronzes were, you know, destroyed, ripped from their ripped from their context, and and distributed around the world. And why is this so important to people in Nigeria today? What, why are they so desperate to get these bronzes back? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is about um, you know establishing the history of Nigeria prior to British control, right? So 
Um, the history of Nigeria extends long before the colonial period. Um, and having these on hand to tell that story to, to their own school children, um, you know, is, is extremely important um, for, for framing their own history as being beyond the sort of past century or so. Um, there's also a continuing artistic tradition in Benin City. So many of the sort of people who made these bronzes um, in these guilds during, during the sort of height of the kingdom, um, their descendants still make bronzes now. Uh, and there's an argument that actually they are they are missing out on the sort of the creative and exemplary materials that they they could be drawing on for for the the continuation of their traditional um, artistic endeavors, but also you know to expand on those and and to to draw on the actual objects rather than on you know having to look at the internet <laughs> to find two D versions of these objects and then try to figure out how to recreate those. What do you think that the most likely future of the bronzes is? So I think some of them are going to be returned. Um, some museums have already sort of pledged to return them. Uh, there is this new um, museum being built in Benin City. Um, and there is a partnership with a variety of museums, uh, including the British Museum, to try to come to some workable solution. And I think at the moment that stands at a sort of rotating loan of the materials. Um, and I think it's currently framed as the British Museum and other museums loaning the materials to this museum. I think probably reframing that as the, uh, the museum in Benin City, loaning it to uh, the other world museums might be helpful. What do you think should happen personally? Yeah, I mean, I think it is useful to have something in a variety of world cities where lots of Nigerian people live uh, that, you know, reminds people outside of Nigeria that um, Africa had these artistic traditions. Um, and, you know, it's constantly a battle. As someone who teaches African history, it's constantly a battle to get people to know that, you know, it was not the quote unquote dark continent, right? Like that it has all these artistic traditions and, um, and, and these complex forms of state building, et cetera. Um, but I think that actually the best way of doing that, and this is not a, <laughs> this is not a, an official position. This is just my own personal view is that, um, actually, uh, the technology for making replicas is so, um, good these days that actually we could give the, the originals back to Benin city, um, and have replicas in the other museums. That was Bronwyn Everall. She wrote a feature on the Benin Bronzes for the August issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes features on the French Revolution, Oliver Cromwell, the 1964 Tokyo Olympics and the history of women and medicine. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tomorrow, Julian Sanctum will be speaking about a story of polar survival. (laughs) 